When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since mirror tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast. I am your host, Neo Grio, and this is episode number 159. It is October the 21st, 2023. And the overall title for the episode this week is something that I've used before, but I didn't think that there was any other uh, title that would aptly express uh, the nature of this week's episode. And so that um, the the title are lyrics from a Tracy Chapman song, and those lyrics are "Love is hate, war is peace, no is yes, and we're all free." So let's get to the agenda, and I'll give you some more information on why I selected that. And uh, so first up uh, this week, um, if uh, anything that you hear. Um, you completely agree with, if anything you you hear that you vehemently disagree with, if there's anything that you hear that makes you happy or sad or whatever, and you want to communicate that to me, please send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. So now let's go ahead and get to that agenda. So first of all, that lyric is going to resonate in every single segment um, that I have today in one point or another. So to start off with with the segment, What's on My Mind, uh, what I'm going to talk about are the illogical rules of war. And uh, essentially what I'm going to talk about is that there is this idea that war can be contained in rules and laws, and I'm going to review what they are and to point out why I think that they are illogical. After that, we'll get to the news. And first up in the news, uh, just guilty as fuck, uh, which is about um, uh, Sidney Powell's guilty plea. Uh, next up is the Chaos Caucus Part Two, uh, as they continue their uh, chaos in the House um, in their inability to select a, a speaker. After that, I am uh, just calling the next story, There Should Be a Test, and specifically what I'm going to be talking about um, are elections, but all, uh, uh, but uh, more specifically about elected officials. Next up, um, Republican role models. Uh, the Republicans are always claiming 
uh, the moral value and family values and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I'm going to review the um, demise of one such a Republican and the role model that he sets for the world, or set for the world, since he's no longer setting anything now since he is deceased. And then the last story in the news this week is just justice, what the fuck. And uh, so it's another one of those stories, and uh, we will... Uh, review in this particular case how justice can seem to correct itself and then turn right about right back around and take away everything. Then uh, after the news, uh, we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us, um, where I'm going to talk about justifiable homicide. And admittedly, this week's segment of uh, This Shit is for Us is more broadly relatable than uh, just for black people. Uh, but uh, it was something that I wanted to talk about this week. Uh, next up is Bible study with Atheist Mike, and continuing kind of the war theme, uh, this is God and the war, and war, rather. How does the Bible depict war and the justifications for war, uh, etc.? And then that'll be it for our overall episode, and we're going to close uh, with an African proverb, each one, teach one and an individual that is showing an example of that. So we have a lot on our plate, um, so let's uh, take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the segment, What's On My Mind. Welcome back and welcome to the segment, uh, What's On My Mind, where each week I just provide you with what's what I've been thinking about uh, since the last episode. And in this particular case, uh, I've titled the segment, The Illogical Rules of War. So what I'm going to talk about this in this week's segment of What's On My Mind is directly related to what is going on between Israel and Palestine or uh, in Gaza. And the perspective that I want to address is the larger question of what makes a war legal versus illegal. Now, I talked some uh, about this some some last week when I said that Israelis' reaction to the horrific attack by Hamas was synonymous uh, with a war crime reaction to a war crime. Uh, But exactly what is a war crime? And at the end of the day, if humans are dead, does the classification of the actions that resulted in their death really matter? So to support the segment this week, I'm going to use an article that appeared in the Friday, October the 13th edition of the New York Times, and that article was titled Binding Laws of War Already Broken. So the point that I'm going to make is that it is illogical to think that war can be contained within a rules framework. As the old saying goes, all is fair in love and war, and the attempt to assign guidelines to combatants is totally illogical. But before we get started, let's define a few concepts. First off, what is war? And I'm going to spend a bit of time on this topic because I think it is important to be clear as to what we're talking about as we move forward. And this is from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Quote, defining what war is requires determining the entities that are allowed to begin and engage in war. And a person's definition of war 
often expresses the person's broader political philosophy, such as limiting war to a conflict between nations or states. Alternative alternative definitions of war can include conflict, not just between nations, but between schools of thoughts or ideologies. The first issue to be considered is what is war and what is its definition. The student of war needs to be careful in examining definitions of war, for like any social phenomenon, definitions are varied and often proposed definition and a proposed definition mask a particular political or philosophical stance paraded by the author. This is as true of dictionary definitions as well as articles on military or political history. A military historian, John Keegan, offers a useful characterization of the political rationalist theory of war in his A History of War. It is assumed to be an orderly affair in which states are involved, in which there are declared beginnings and expected ends, easily identifiable combatants and high levels of obedience to uh, or obedience by subordinates. The form of rational war is narrowly defined as distinguished by the expectation of sieges, pitch battles, skirmishes, raids, reconnaissance, patrol, and outpost duties, with each possessing their own conventions. As such, Keegan notes the rationalist theory does not deal well with pre-state or non-state peoples and their warfare. Now, an alternative definition of war is that it is an all-pervasive phenomenon of the universe. Accordingly, battles are mere symptoms of the underlying belligerent nature of the universe, such as a or such a description corresponds with a Heracletan or Aeglian philosophy in which change, both physical, social, political, economical, etc., can only arise out of war or violent conflict. Heraclitus decries that, quote, war is the father of all things, end quote, and Hegel echoes his sentiments. Interestingly, even Voltaire, the uh, the embodiment of the Enlightenment, followed this line, quote, famine, plague, and war are the three most famous ingredients of this wretched world. All animals are perpetually at war with each other. Air, earth, and water are arenas of destruction, end quote. So when we talk about modern laws of war, we are talking, uh, we're taking the Keegan definition of war and saying that it is political and rational. The alternative view would imply that rules cannot contain war and that war is a natural and free flowing activity without rules or laws. So me characterizing these, the Israeli response to the Hamas attack as a war crime, um, Responds, uh, which was a war crime response to a war crime that was based on the former view of war as a political, as being political and rational. But that is not the only view. The main concern I have with the characterization of the conflict is that it's being, it is being presented as if one side is sub or alt human and the other side is human, but they are both doing similar things. Israel said that it did not decapitate babies, and but they did blow babies the fuck up, and they starved babies. And they told them, they told the um, the people in Gaza to flee, which was impossible. And when the Gazans tried, they bombed them uh, when they were fleeing. The number of Palestinians that have died in this conflict is already double that of the number of Israelis that were killed in the attack 
on October the 7th, and in my opinion, there is no way that the Israelis can say that every dead Palestinian was a member of Hamas. Of course, as the words of the Israeli president imply, Israel is not differentiating Hamas from regular Palestines anyway. The Israeli president, is, uh, is Isaac uh, Herzog, in a press conference that said that there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. While thousands of Palestinians struggled to flee northern Gaza after Israel's military told some 1.1 million of them to evacuate south ahead of an anticipated military operation. Quote, it is an, it is an entire nation out there that is, ir- that is responsible, Herzog said in a press conference on Friday, October the 13th, as the Huffington Post reported on. Quote, it is not true. This rhetoric about civilians not being aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against the evil regime, which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. So the article that I took this from said after reporting the president's remark, quote, international law is clear that belligerents who fail to distinguish between combatants and civilians are guilty of war crimes. And I do not think that President Herzog's opinions are fringe in Israel. Another Israeli minister went even further. Israeli finance minister uh, uh, Bezalel uh, Sometrik delivered a speech in Paris saying that the notion of a Palestinian, Palestinian people was artificial. Quote, he said, there is no such thing as a Palestinian nation. No Palestinian history, no Palestinian language. And he said that in France last Sunday. Now, it is clear from the rhetoric that the Israeli government is is spewing that it does not see a difference uh, from the average citizens, uh, citizen of, of Gaza and Hamas. And they do not even believe that something called a Palestinian exists, like the transphobes who say that transhumans do not exist. It is a it is a denial of humanity and a denial of humanity will always lead to war crimes. But let's get back to the definitions and define then what is a war crime. And to help define war crimes, let's review this information from the United Nations. Quote, even though the prohibition of certain behaviors in the conduct of an armed conflict can be traced back many centuries, the concept of war crimes developed particularly at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century when international humanitarian law, also known as the law of armed conflict, was codified. The Hague Conventions adopted in 1899 and 1907 focused on the prohibition to warring parties to use certain means and methods of warfare. Several others related to treat, other related treaties have been adopted since then. In contrast, the Geneva Conventions of 1864 and subsequent Geneva Conventions, notably the four 1949 Geneva Conventions and the two 1977 additional protocols, focus on the protection of persons not or no longer taking part in the hostilities. Both the Hague Law and Geneva Law identify several of the violations of its norms, though not all as war crimes. However, there is no one single document in international law that codifies all war crimes. List of war crimes can be found in both international humanitarian law and international criminal law treaties, as well as an in international uh, customary law. 
So what we are not going to be able to, we're, we're not going to be able to review all of the laws of war, uh, nor of the Geneva con- Conventions, but I do want to note two things here. The law of armed conflict is the codification of the rules that attempt to govern the contact of, conduct of warring parties, and the Geneva, Geneva conditions are related to the treatment of individuals that are no longer part of the war, like prisoners of war. Now, I'm going to start with war crimes related to the Geneva Conventions, as I think it is a more accurate description of what's happening in the Middle East today. Um, and uh, I, like I said, I believe that it, it that what is happening there now is a war crime response to a war crime response to a war crime. Israel's persistent inhuman treatment of the Palestinians was, in my opinion, a war crime. And Hamas's response was a war crime. And now Israel is committing another war crime in response to the Hamas attacks. Now, here are some excerpts on what constitutes a war crime from the United Nations. Now, I'm only going to use a few of these that I feel to be relevant uh, to to today's discussion, but there are many more than the ones that I am going to list. So first of all, the United States says, uh, as it relates to war crimes, the court shall have justification or jurisdiction, rather, in respect to war crimes, in particular when committed as part of a plan or policy as part of a large-scale commission of such crimes. For the purpose of this statute, war crimes means, A, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions of 12th of August, 1949, namely any of the following acts against persons or property protected under the provisions of the relevant Geneva Conventions. Willful killing, willfully depriving a prisoner of war or other protected person of the rights of fair and regular trial, unlawful deportation or transfer of unlawful confinement, taking of hostages. And then B, other serious violations of the laws and customs applicable in international armed conflict within the established framework of international law, namely any of the following acts. Intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population as such or against individual civilians not taking direct part in hostilities. Intentionally directing attacks against civilian objects, that is, objects that are not military objectives. Intentionally directing attacks against personnel, installations, material, units, or vehicles involved in a humanitarian assistance or peacekeeping mission mission in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, as long as they are entitled to the protection given to civilians or civilian objects under the international law of armed conflict. Intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such an attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment, which would be clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. Intacking or bombarding by whatever means towns, villages, dwellings, buildings, which are not un- which are undefended and which are not military objectives. Killing or wounding a combatant who has having laid down his arms or having no longer means of defense, has surrendered at discretion. Killing or wounding treacherous individuals belonging to the hostile nation or army, or or wounding or treacherously killing the individuals, declaring that no quarter will be given, that is, that no peace will be given at, at all, destroying or seizing the enemy's property unless such destruction or seizure 
be imperatively demanded by the necessities of war, pillaging a town or place even when taken by assault, committing outrages upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment, committing rape, sexual slavery, and forced prostitution, forced pregnancy as defined in Article 7, Paragraph 2, Section F, and forced sterilization or any other form of sexual violence also constitutes a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. And then lastly, for what I want to cover, utilizing the presence of a civilian or other protected person to remain uh, or to render certain points uh, areas or military forces immune from military operations. Now, out of all of those, both Hamas and Israeli forces have committed many of the acts that I just described as war crimes or that were described as war crimes by the United Nations. So now let's conclude with the New York Times article. Quote, it can be difficult to hold onto reason through the fog of grief that is the natural response to what has occurred in recent days in Israel and Gaza. But international law offers a framework for how to analyze what is happening, even while atrocities and deaths from the Hamas incursion are still being documented and the consequences of Israeli siege and airstrikes on the crowded Gaza Strip, home to millions of civilians, continue to unfold. New information is coming out every day. Details will take time to verify. Misinformation is already widespread, and it can be easy to get bogged down in debates over unconfirmed allegations. The laws of war offer a guide to what matters most and to what should happen next. Two principles are particularly helpful. The first is that the, quote, why, end quote, and the, quote, how, end quote, of war are separate legal questions. The justice or injustice of a cause of war does not change the obligation to fight it according to rules of humanitarian law. The second related principle from which much of humanitarian law derives is that civilians are entitled to protection. Armies and other armed groups cannot target them directly, nor can they disproportionately harm them in the course of pursuing legitimate military goals. And those obligations still apply even if the other side violates them by targeting civilians themselves. The Israeli containment of the Gaza Strip has denied Palestinians the right to self-determination since Israel's inception as a country state. And as I said earlier, in my opinion, that was a war crime. Hamas's past and uh, this most recent attack, whether prompted by the treatment of the Palestinians by Israel or not, is also a war crime. But the majority of the Western countries are characterizing what Hamas did as it the sub or alt human level and what the Israelis are doing and what they did in the past, they're being described as just simply self-defense. This is problematic as the language being used dehumanizes the Palestinians and characterize the, characterizes their annihilation, annihilation as justified. Now back to the article, it talks about what protections should be there be for human beings. Quote, the origin of the law of law of war goes back centuries, but its modern form was a reaction to the world wars of the 20th century. In 1928, the Kellogg Braid Pact, an international treaty, outlawed most forms of war. It was followed by the UN Charter of 1945, which clarified the ban on aggressive war and then the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and 77, 
further uh, and the further development of international criminal law in the second half of the 20th century, leading to the establishment of the International Criminal Court in 2002. Now, the law governing when states can use military force is known as just ad bellum, a Latin term that refers to the law regulating the use of force in internationally. Today, this law is very strict, essentially forbidding states to use force against each other except in self-defense, said Una Hathaway, a professor at Yale Law School and co-author of, quote, the uh, internationalist how a radical plan to outlaw war remade the world, end quote. Quote, it used to be the case that states could go to war for pretty much any reason, Hathaway said. They could go to war for debt collection. They could go to war, you know, to respond to wife stealing. They could go to war because other side, the other side is interfering with their trade relations, but that is no longer true, end quote. But regardless of whether there are legitimate grounds to use force, she said, all parties to the conflict are still expected to follow humanitarian laws governing the conduct of war itself, known as just in bello, uh, law regulating the conduct of hostilities. Anyone who has spent much time on social media recently will have seen people conflate the justness of the conflict itself with the justness of the way it is being conducted. Some have appeared to excuse the killing of Israeli civilians on the basis that Israel's occupation of Palestine territories is wrong, while others appear to dismiss the killing of Palestinian civilians in airstrikes on the ground that Israel is right to defend itself from the attack. Treating cause and conduct uh, as two separate questions as the law does, is a way to hold the complexities of war and the political questions that underlie it in clear focus without losing sight of the shared humanity on all sides. But now we get to my point. I agree with the author of the article that the law provides a good framework for conducting hostilities, but I disagree that any nation has or ever will follow them. Case in point, it is the U.S. The, the, uh, one of the cases in point is that the U.S. used the atomic bomb uh, and their stated reason was then and still is today that it was humanitarian. They stated that as the U.S. stated that if the war had drug on for many more years, many more people would have died. But here are the statistics of what happened in those attacks. In Hiroshima, 70,000 to 126,000 civilians were killed. 7,000 to 20,000 soldiers were killed. 12 Allied prisoners of war were killed. In Nagasaki, 60,000 to 80,000 killed within four months. 150 plus soldiers killed and 8 to 13 Allied prisoners of war were killed. So the total was 129,000 to 226,000 mostly innocent civilians that were killed. Now, the U.S. targeted civilian population centers, not military targets, and based on the definitions of international law today, the U.S. committed a war crime. But they would never say so and never agree to that. Now, let's go back to the definition of war and use not the philosophical definition, but a practical one. And this comes from Wikipedia. Quote, War is an intense armed conflict between states, governments, societies, or paramilitary groups, such as mercenaries, insurgents, and militias. It is generally characterized by extreme violence, destruction, and mortality using regular or irregular military forces, end quote. With that definition of war, there can be no rules. 
Intense conflict by various agents cannot be contained within a humanitarian framework. War itself is inhuman, and therefore all wars will contain war crimes. Israel was not justified in robbing the Palestinian people of dignity. Hamas was not justified in killing innocent civilians, raping women, and decapitating babies. And Israel is not justified in bombarding Gaza and killing everyone there. But that is fucking war. And there is a war. And if there is a war, then shit like that is going to happen. The only human way to conduct a war is not to start one or participate in one. All else is inhuman and equally unjustifiable. All right, that is it for this week's segment of What's On My Mind. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll cover the news. Welcome back. And let's just get right to the news. First up in the news, um, I'm just titling this guilty as fuck. So in some uh, political good news this week, the self-described Kraken of Trump's insurrection team, Sidney Powell, has admitted to her wrongdoing in a Georgia court. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, that does not bode well for the ex-president and future felon. Now, I'm sure that Powell's guilty plea came with some consideration from the prosecutors, and that would have only been given if she agreed to testify against her co-conspirators, including Trump. Previous to Powell's admission uh, of guilt, uh, another low-level conspirator pled guilty, and th these are, in my opinion, just the f first two dirty rats off a sinking derelict ship that is the Trump campaign. Powell is certainly a bigger fish, and I am sure that she can provide the goods to convict Rudy Giuliani, if not every one of the co-conspirators, um, and to me, that's going to be fun. But here are some excerpts from the New York Times on this guilty plea. Quote, Sidney K. Powell, a member of Donald J. Trump's legal team after he lost the 2020 election, pleaded guilty on Thursday morning to six misdemeanor counts instead of facing a criminal trial that was to begin next week. She was among 19 defendants, including Mr. Trump, who were indicted in August for their efforts to subvert the election results in Georgia. Ms. Powell, 68, who appeared in a downtown Atlanta courtroom, was sentenced to six years of probation for a conspiracy to commit intentional interference of uh, election duties. That is significantly less severe outcome than she would have faced if found guilty of the charges for which she was originally indicted, which included a violation of the state racketeering law. She was also fined $6,000 and agreed to pay $2,700 in restitution to the state of Georgia, as well as write an apology letter to its citizens. Prosecutors said in court that Ms. Powell had given them a recorded statement on Wednesday as part of her plea deal. She has agreed to testify uh, against any of the 17 remaining defendants. Ms. Powell has also agreed to turn over documents in her possession related to the case. The guilty plea was a blow to Mr. Trump, who faces the most charges of any defendant, along with Rudy Giuliani, his former personal lawyer. Both men face 13 counts. Significantly, it means that a member of the Trump legal team will cooperate with prosecutors as it pursues criminal convictions related to efforts to keep the former president in power after he lost the 2020 election. Now, I would bet real money 
that uh, on hearing the news about Powell's guilty plea, Trump shat himself and filled his voluminous drawers with his shit. Now, this is more than just a blow. I think this is a death knell for this asshole. All right, let's go on to the next story. And this one I'm just titling The Chaos Caucus Part Two. So last week, the Chaos Caucus in the House nominated a self-described, quote, David Duke without the baggage, end quote, to be its speaker. But when he couldn't get enough votes to win that role, Steve Scalise dropped out. This week, they nominated an election denier and January 6th antagonist for the role. Uh, And in his first vote, he lost and he failed to win the speakership. And so he had another vote and he failed to win that one as well. And so here's what the New York Times has to say about what comes next now that um, Jim Jordan has lost uh, twice um, uh, on trying to become speaker. Quote, in a day of whiplash and uncertainty on Capitol Hill, Representative Jim Jordan of, of Ohio said Thursday he would push for another vote to become speaker, even in the face of a growing block of Republican opposition. Just hours after the hard right Republican said that he would pause his candidacy and support elevating the interim speaker, Representative Patrick T. McHenry of North Carolina, to temporarily lead the House, Mr. Jordan reversed course yet again and said that he would move forward with his bid to win the post. It was not immediately clear when another vote could be scheduled. His decision came after a furious backlash from rank-and-file Republicans, including many of his far-right supporters, who said that empowering Mr. McHenry, a stand-in appointed by his, to his post after the ouster of then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy, would effectively cede control of the House floor to the Democrats and set a bad precedent. That's even though uh, McHenry is, in fact, a Republican, so I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But... It was the latest uh, abrupt turn in a Republican speaker drama that has played out for more than two weeks, underscoring the depth of the party's divisions and disarray. Unable to unite behind a candidate to lead them, the GOP now can't even agree on a temporary solution to allow the paralyzed House to function while they sort out their differences. So the chaos caucus continues with no end in sight. If Jordan were to garner enough votes to be elected speaker, it would be the second worst outcome for the Democrats. The worst outcome would have been if they had saved McCarthy. All right, let's go on to the next story. And I'm just calling this one, there should be a test. So I am all for making it easier to vote. I would like to see expanded voting locations, wider mail-in ballots, and an election day holiday. But even with all of that, I don't think that just anyone should be allowed to vote. There should be a test. It can be a simple test. For example, you could say, ask who won the 2020 presidential election. Anyone that says anything other than Joe Biden should be barred from voting. Now, that being said, that's not what I want to talk about. That's not what this next story is going to be about. This is about an elected official, and there should be a test for them as well. No one that cites mythology for making any decision in government should be should be allowed to continue. They should be ousted as being unfit for office. So case in point, this story from Hemet Mehta, the friendly atheist, uh, on um, a, uh, a particular uh, state representative. 
So, Pennsylvania State Representative Stephanie Barwitz, a Christian nationalist who has spent years pushing her faith on others through her government position, said this week that climate change wasn't a concern because the Bible said so. When Democrats are pushing uh, bills and and banning gas-powered moors and gas-powered stoves in New York City, all under the name of climate control agenda, we can all see what's really going on here, she said. The truth is, in Genesis uh, chapter 8, verse 22, it says, quote, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, uh, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease, end quote. I'll say that again, will never cease, end quote. So, of course, we are to be good stewards of God's creation, she said, but not through a forceful climate control global agenda. So what was this idiot ranting against? The Dems pushing a resolution to bar some burning of fossil fuels? No. This clip came from a discussion on Monday over the House Resolution Resolution 228, which would designate the, designate the week of October the 1st through the 7th, 2023, as Climate Week across the state. So what she was reacting against and pushing all of this nonsensical mythology was a, uh, a bill to say that, uh, that, uh, the, that from October the 1st to the 7th was Climate Week. The harmless resolution just acknowledged the reality of the climate crisis. So she was mad that a bill that was introduced to acknowledge that climate change was real, and she referenced the Bible to rail against it. Citing Genesis as proof that climate change is a hoax, Hammett says, is using a, and using a chapter of the Bible all about how God flooded the earth to destroy nearly all of mankind is batshit insane. But it's also par for the course for white evangelicals who only 8% uh, accept the reality of the crisis. The fact is you cannot, quote, be a good steward of God's creation if you don't give a shit about what you believe God's creation is. And uh, Hammett said, as I recently wrote, Christians could easily argue that they're required by God to take care of the planet that he gave them. After all, if Jesus doesn't return for another couple of centuries, then it needs to remain sustainable for future generations of children. But science denying white evangelicals, selfish to the core, don't give a damn about the society that they live in because they've fallen for the delusion that the afterlife is all that matters. So to hell with everyone else in this world, let it burn. They're only here to make everyone, uh, every problem worse. So in my opinion, any elected official that cites the fucking Bible or any other type of mythology should be immediately relieved of their duties and referred to a mental institution. We cannot expect good government if we rely on a two to five thousand year old collection of batshit nonsense. All right, let's go on to this next story, which I'm just titling Republican Role Models. So the Republicans say that they stand for family values, though they are never very specific about what exactly that fucking means. But you would think that with their boasting about their values, that they would present a role model for the rest of the world to mimic. But that's rarely the case. Also, the Republicans place a high value on money, uh, especially in conjunction with political donations. So you would think that their donors would set a even higher bar for moral conduct. But as this story from the Daily Beast shows, that is not true either. Quote, a longtime Republican donor and activist shot a woman before killing himself last week, 
during apparent attempted murder-suicide, authorities confirmed to the Miami Herald. The woman, who was n- has not yet been identified, survived the shooting after being rushed to the hospital with injuries in her back and arm. The shooter, Steve Elmbick, uh, died at the scene of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The 72-year-old had been a reliable donor to Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, gaining notoriety over the years for calling then-President Barack Obama a racial slur and for celebrating the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Amblick's uh, conservative allies paid tribute to him after his death online. Quote, Though the tragedy surrounding Steve's suicide has shocked everyone, and as the details come out, people will probably be judgmental, far-right activist Laura Loomer wrote in a post, quote, I just want, uh, I just know that Steve was a kind man and who had personal struggles like everyone else, end quote. Now, what this fucking so-called kind man said about Obama was, he said that he was a fucking Muslim N-word, And he then, he also, what he said about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, quote, can't die soon enough, end quote. So what do I say about this fool? He evidently didn't think that he could die soon enough since he blew his fucking brains out and his dumbass even fucked up a murder-suicide and only got the suicide part right. Good riddance to this motherfucker, I say. All right, now let's go on to the next story, and this is the last one for this week. And this one is just justice, what the fuck. So this story, uh, this the last story this week is going to show just how quickly the justice system can turn on itself. After initially granting a bit of justice, it comes back and takes it all away and takes even more. So a man who was wrongfully convicted and spent more than 16 years in prison before being released in, ni- in, in 2020 was fatally shot this past Monday by a sheriff's deputy in Georgia during a traffic stop, the authority said. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is conducting an independent investigation of the shooting in Camden County, identified the man who was black as Leonard Allen Curie, 53. Mr. Curie was the first person exonerated by the Broward County Attorney's Office Conviction Review Unit. His case was also represented by the Innocence Project of Florida. The Bureau said in a news release that Camden County Deputy, a Camden Camden County deputy, deputy whose name has not been released, initiated a traffic stop in, on early Monday on Interstate 95, not far from the Florida state line. A spokesman for the Camden County Sheriff's Office said on Tuesday that Mr. Curie was pulled over for speeding. Mr. Curie got out of the car at the deputy's request and was compliant until he was placed under arrest. Quote, after not complying with the deputy's request, the deputy tased Curie, the bureau said. Curie assaulted the deputy. The deputy used a taser a second time and a baton to subdue Mr. Curie, who still did not comply, according to the statement. The deputy then pulled out his gun and shot Mr. Curie, the bureau said. EMTs treated Curie, but uh, he later died. Now, Mr. Curie was convicted of the armed robbery of a Walgreens in Broward County in 2003 and was sentenced to life in prison because of prior convictions. Mr. Curie was released and in December 2020, he was exonerated based on findings of, quote, actual innocence, end quote. The Innocence Process Project of Florida said officials had determined that evidence in the form of an ATM receipt, had proven that Mr. Curie was miles from the crime scene at the time of the robbery. 
In June, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida approved a claims bill that gave Mr. Cure $817,000 in educational benefits for his wrongful conviction and incarceration. The Sun Sentinel reported. So Mr. Cure received that compensation, compensation just this past August. Quote, he had been working uh, a job in security. He was hoping to go to college and he wanted to work in broadcast radio production. Mr. Pryor said he was buying his first home, end quote. Now, all of his hopes and dreams are gone. Why? Because he was speeding. Why would a traffic stop for speeding result in him being asked to get out of his car, let alone be arrested and then shot? Mr. Curie was convicted of a crime that he definitely did not commit And what crime will law enforcement now say that he was guilty of to justify killing him after that fact? All right, that is it for that story and it for the news. So we'll take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment. This shit is for us. All right, welcome back and welcome to the segment This Shit is for Us, where each week I, a black man, provide some information intended for my black brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean that if uh, you're not black, you have to skip it. Please listen to it. But if you have any questions, please send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. So as I mentioned in the intro, the topic today is a bit more broad than uh, it's intended for black people only. And the segment title is Justifiable Homicide. So what I want to talk about is that the characterization of the people on either side of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians got me to thinking about the justification that humans use to kill one another. In all cases, a dichotomy and a hierarchy must be created. It is not possible for a human to take another human life unless the victim has been separated from his or her humanity first. In many cases, um, in this day and age, the justification for killing a human uh, relies on one of uh, or both of two interconnected ideologies, and those ideologies are race and religion. So I want to review this um, from an Afrocentric point of view and to talk about the constructed reality that was developed for the express purpose of killing black people uh, with no remorse and no guilt. It was this constructed frame of mind that continues today uh, that facilitates the atrocities associated with white supremacy-based oppression. For example, in the book um, King Leopold's Ghost, uh, there uh, is a recounting of an incident that happened during a forced migration of an African village. Uh, The book talks about the fact that the Belgians uh, went into a village and forced the all of the the uh, members of that village to go from one place to another in order to work um, uh, the rubber trees to bring wealth to the Belgian state. So a woman with a newborn uh, baby was falling behind as she was trying to carry her baby and she was weak from just having recently given birth. One of the Belgian soldiers kept harassing the young mother to keep up. And when she fell behind again, he snatched her baby out of her arms, threw the child in a ditch and stomped it to death in front of her. And he said to the mother then, quote, now you can keep up, end quote. So what is the thought process that would allow 
that to happen uh, for the soldier to have no remorse and no guilt in committing such a crime. That is what I want to try to intend to answer today. Um, and I'm probably going to take a uh, long route around doing that. So Israel has declared war on Hamas, and their justification is the horrific acts that were committed by Hamas on October the 7th, uh, which uh, was um, a de facto declaration of war in Israel's mind uh, against Israel. Now, even if that is true, the question becomes, is homicide justifiable when war is declared? Now, another question is, what is war? And when I answered that earlier in the uh, uh, what's on my mind segment, but I want to repeat it here, um, and I want to repeat it uh, because it's necessary to see what types of conflicts should be characterized as war. As an example, was the war on drugs a war? And if yes, was homicide a justifiable component of that war? If our war against racism is a war, uh, we and we say that it is, then is homicide justifiable as a self-defense measure against racists? Now, the Wikipedia definition of war is, quote, war is an intense and armed conflict between states, governments, societies, or military groups, such as mercenaries, insurgents, and militias. It is generally characterized by extreme violence, destruction, and mortality using regular or irregular military forces, end quote. Now, there are other definitions of war that limit it to nation states, but that is too limiting as it would not even then include civil war as that is between factions of the same nation state. War is on armed conflict and by armed, it is meant that some type of a weapon will be used. The type of weapon will depend on what is available, but in a war, there is always an expectation that the forces on one side will seek to kill the forces on the other side, and both will feel justified in doing so. Now, let's discuss the justifications of homicide as it relates to a war. And I want to use a paper written by uh, Alvin Esser titled uh, Killing in War, Unasked Questions, Ill-Founded Le- Legitimizations. Uh, silent, um, uh, uh, silent E.M. Lege Inter Arma. With this phrase, Marcus Tilius Cicero defended the People's uh, Tribune, Milo's killing of his adversary Claudius in 52 B.C., over time, this deference has, or this defense rather, has become so commonly recognized that Thomas Hobbes described it as, quote, a fond saying that all laws are silent at the time of war, which is what that uh, statement that I read in, uh, in foreign language means. Since it has evolved into a frequent quoted truism, it may be Don Quixote fight against windmills to call the legitimacy of killing in war into question. It seems particularly so when considering that in the meantime, warfare has been domesticated by modern humanitarian international law and open to prosecution when when it's crossing the threshold of a war crime. So why shouldn't this be sufficient to find killing in war both morally justified and sufficiently legitimized? Why cast doubt on it? Even though killing in war is restricted and penalized to a certain degree by outlawing the use of particular deadly means and terrible weapons and rejecting uh, disproportionate effects on civilians, 
why is it considered permissible to kill at all? Shall the mere reason of being at war justify deadly action? If war is given such, if war is given such a law suspending power, on what ground can such a privilege be based? This question is not yet answered by simply referring to the limitations of killing in war. To the contrary, to prohibit certain acts of killing implies that otherwise these acts would be allowed. Does this mean that killing in war, unless and as long as not fund- a fundamentally uh, explicitly forbidden, is per se permitted? And thus does not and thus does not require any further legitimization. This fundamental question can easily be overlooked in killing in war while without further ado considered lawful in principle is scrutinized only with regards to potential restrictions. So instead of being content with secondary issues of how killing in war may be restricted, the primary question at stake here is why and how killing in war may be legitimized in principle. Now, this intro to the paper is basically saying that killing in times of war went from the old adage that, quote, everything is fair in love and war, uh, expressed by that saying uh, that all laws are silent to saying that uh, that it went from everything is fair to saying that the law is silent in war to saying that killing is constrained by codified rules that prevent certain kinds of killing. For example, the use of poison gas is prohibited and unduly killing of civilians, civilians is prohibited. But the author is asking the question of does adding rules to a war uh, to wartime homicide automatically lead to the legitimization of the use of, of, of homicide. Uh, he is asking the question, can killing another human being ever be justified even in times of war? Now, the author next states that in the beginning, he also viewed uh, killing in war as justified, and he provides uh, this description of his thoughts related, his prior thoughts related to its justification. Quote, the, pu- the peculiarity of this assumption can perhaps be best illustrated by comparing the radical different assessment of killing a human being inside and outside of military conflict. Whereas, quote, a normal, end quote, homicide, unless specifically justified, is undoubtedly unlawful, a killing in war is, in principle, considered lawful without requiring an individual justification. In addition, not only is the killing of enemies in times of war per se regarded as legitimate, but the greater the death toll, the greater the military decoration. This commonly unquestioned license to kill is all the more astonishing in that, as will be shown below, no legal norm can be found that positively and explicitly declares killing in war to be lawful. Rather, it seems that this practice is based merely on military, militarily accepted tolerance without having been fundamentally founded. In other words, the killing in times of war is viewed as justified unless proven to be unjust, whereas killing outside times of war is the opposite. Although every murderer is innocent until proven guilty, homicide itself is considered by default to be wrong unless there was some specific justification like self-defense. So the order, the paper goes on to say, quote, this tacit acceptance of killing in war as legitimate may have been tolerable as long as war somehow declared by one state or state-like power against another was an easily definable fight. 
However, in many of today's armed conflicts, this is not the case. The face and the methods of war have changed dramatically. Regarding the types and areas in which hostile conflicts may occur in rising numbers, military activities are not confined to confrontations between states and their regular combatants, but may, in a rather more asymmetric manner, be fought between soldiers and stateless combatants, internal insurgents or other terrorist groups, and transnational networks. With regards to the methods of battle, face-to-face fighting is more and more supplemented or even substituted by targeted killing, often performed by drones, thus turning individual confrontations into distant attacks and cyber warfare. In other words, because killing outside of war is considered wrong, uh, isn't considered wrong unless it's justified, and killing uh, or, or in, in other words, since killing outside of war is considered wrong unless it's specifically justified, but killing within a war is considered justified unless it's proven to be unjust, that would be somewhat reasonable if war could be well-defined, but it cannot. War is no longer only between country-states, and as such, it is the winners of wars that are able to, de- to determine if a particular war was justified, and therefore, if the homicides committed as a part of that war were also justified. Now, the dead, I am sure, would not agree with that that, that uh, justification. But going on back to the paper, the fundamental difference between the war paradigm and the law enforcement paradigm becomes all the more crucial and dubious if there is no clear borderline between murder within the rubric of criminal law and a deadly attack within the rubric of war. As in the war paradigm, military fighters need not fear criminal prosecution. They themselves, as well as the state power they are serving, can feel less constrained in their actions. Therefore, it should not be a surprise that as long as killing does not reach the threshold of a war crime in terms of international criminal law, hostile counterparts will be inclined to call any armed conflict a war. This explains, the article says, why George W. Bush's administration was so quick and keen to pronounce the reaction against the 9-11 terrorists and protection against similar atrocities as, quote, the war on terror, end quote, thus avoiding perhaps troublesome ordinary criminal investigations or other considerations in its means and measure. However, terrorist groups combating in a so-called war may for their part too claim the privilege of fighting in a war and thus become exempt from any prosecution for homicide, at least if a transnational element is involved. Now, this is true, but it is true even if war crimes are committed. In the so-called war on terror, the Bush administration tortured prisoners and denied them due process both of which are against international laws of war. The administration was able to get around the rules by stating that the individuals they captured were not members of the war, but were illegal non-combatants. That is, that they were fighting in the war, but were not protected by the rules of war. Thus, even the even killing that went beyond the boundary of war crimes was justified because the enemy was dehumanized and therefore not subject to humane treatment by the United States. Now, this is true as to what is going on with Israel today. Israel declared war on Hamas after the Hamas attacks, which gave them the political and to a certain extent moral justification for mass homicide. Statements by Israeli leaders have shown that they 
and the Israeli army is not distinguishing between Palestinian citizens and Hamas, thus the indiscriminate killing of innocents is characterized as such. Is not They don't consider it to be uh, innocents. For example, there are reports that Israel bombed and destroyed entire apartment buildings where they suspected one Hamas leader, leader lived. The fact that hundreds of other Palestinians were killed was not even considered as collateral damage. On the Israeli side, it was considered a win. But going on uh, back to the paper, the apocalyptic vision is all the more frightening because writings and debates on killing in war used to be focused on enemy fighters, uh, whereas there are, in fact, at least four groups of people who can be affected by killing in a war. The first and second groups are the fighters on the two adversary sides, not only with regard to their active roles and legitimacy as killers, but also as potential victims in respect to which it should be asked on what legal basis they can be expected or even obliged to sacrifice their lives. The third and fourth groups consist of civilians, again on both sides of the military conflict, and increasingly more and more afflicted by modern warfare through bombings, distant drone operations, and other hardly controllable military means. As long as the killing of innocent victims on the enemy side does not cross the threshold of a war crime, criminal law is considered to be silent. As far as fatalities among one's own population are concerned, these innocent victims too may ask why their right to life is considered to be suspended by the mere fact of being at war. In the case of modern declarations of war, the issue that the majority of the people impacted, uh, that is the majority of the people on both sides, that will be killed or injured are members of the armies or the organizations that are fighting the war. The Israelis that were attacked and brutally murdered by Hamas were not, for the most part, members of the armed forces. There were some members of the military among the numbers of the dead, injured and captured, but the vast majority were civilians. The vast majority of the Palestinians that have been killed since Israel declared war were not members of Hamas. Both groups, Hamas and the IDF, believe that their actions are and were justified by their objectives to both free and protect their people. Some will say that I am presenting a false equivalency, but innocent people dying is innocent people dying regardless of the objectives those, uh, of those that commit the homicides. Now, the author then reviews several possible justifications for killing in times of war and finds that they are all fraught with issues. He reviewed first criminal law defense, but found that, quote, even if an exemption from homicide appeared acceptable with regard to combatants, this could this exemption also be extended to innocent civilians? The widespread silence on these questions speaks for itself. For as long as exemptions from the definition of homicide are not made expressly for killing in war, it is unclear whether they can be assumed at all, and if, if so, why? Nor is it sufficiently clear who should lose criminal protection by such, such exemptions. Is it only adversary combatants or also civilians under, and under what conditions? Secondly, uh, the author reviewed constitutional law. And he wrote, quote, the reason for not scrutinizing killing in war from a constitutional perspective seems to be an awareness of the fact that killing in war, if authorized by the respective state, 
rather than being merely an individual act of the soldier, is ultimately attributed to the state and thus must be reconcilable with its constitutional requirements and guarantees. First, start with the inviolability uh, of the human dignity and the right to life. These are human rights and freedoms that are guaranteed to every human being. Thus, they are, irres- they are irrespective of citizenship or of any other status, as well as being irrespective of the efforts of the state activity occurring abroad. Accordingly, participants in a war on whatever side, too, may claim equal constitutional respect and protection. So, in other words, that uh, from a constitutional perspective, uh, individuals on either side of a war should have the same constitutional rights. And if they have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then then they should not be killed uh, in either case. And then lastly, the Arthur reviewed the justification for killing in war against international law. And he says, quote, since a positive license to kill in war can be found neither in criminal or constitutional law, the leap to international law is increasingly finding followers. This argument can be found mainly in three different manners. First, by considering national law, including constitutional law superimposed by international law of war. Second, less specifically, by simply referring to international law as the highest instance for evaluating the evaluation of killing in war. And finally, in the most oversimplified manner, by suggesting that in the case of war, everything that is not forbidden is permitted. Beyond the factual, um, uh, beyond the factual drama of the of countless human sacrifices going unpunished due to the assumption that what is not forbidden is permitted, this claim is also untenable from a normative perspective. In particular, it is hardly persuasive from a human rights conceptual understanding of freedom and prohibition. Although it may seem that it is a it is to prize liter- liberty to consider that what is not forbidden is allowed, such a maximum is feasible only where, by refraining from a prohibition, a right or freedom that already exists shall not be restricted. Thus, with regard to killing other human beings, the maximum of, maxim of refraining from restricting what is legitimate freedom could only come into question if killing were part of the principally unlimited freedom of personal development and activity, which it is not. Such a far-reaching primary freedom to kill, however, would hardly be reconcilable with modern general principles of law, particularly not with modern human rights and their foremost right to life. Therefore, it is not the right of life, but its violation that requires justification. In sum, given that killing human beings uh, is a prima facie prohibited and thereby the exercise of personal freedom with deadly means limited from the very onset, killing in war cannot simply be considered legitimized by the absence of an explicit prohibition of killing in war. So in other words, there is rational justification for viewing killing in war uh, and saying that that is justified, uh, it, but it doesn't appear uh, it, that that justification does not appear in criminal law, constitutional law, or international law. The fact that killing is viewed as not only justified, but as the primary expectation in war is the reason that so many innocent people die. If a state or other organization declares war on anything and then wrap themselves in the legitimacy of philosophy that all they do is justified, 
even the killing of innocent men, women, and children will be justified. The Israelis decried the rape of women by Hamas to justify their killing of innocent women and children in Gaza. But rape has been a part of almost every conflict. That is not to say that it should be justified, and it is not, but neither is killing the individuals that perpetrate that crime. Now, all that might make it seem that I'm a pacifist, but I am not. I do not believe that pacifism is the only approach to war. But what I do believe is that even in war, killing should not or should be rather a last resort, not the objective. There is a concept in the martial art of Aikido that says that only the force necessary to disarm an attacker should be used. If you can run away, do so. If you can't run away, but you can disarm the attacker, do that. If that isn't possible, it is permissible to maim the attacker. And if even that will not stop the attack, then it is permissible to kill. In the case of Israel's response to the Hamas attacks, killing may have been required for self-defense, but only to the point of rendering Hamas incapable of executing another attack. But if it were impossible to do that without killing innocent people, then the act of self-defense in and of itself cannot be a justification for bombing a city. Now, let's bring this back to the this shit is for us topic. First off, let me use an example where killing, even killing that today would be considered a war crime was justified. During the war for Haitian independence, the Haitian fighters had a reputation for brutally killing and disfiguring the French soldiers. The purpose was to act as a deterrent to the French uh, so that they would not want to continue the fight. In that case, the brutality was confined to the soldiers that were trying to kill the Haitians, and it was not about killing any and all French uh, people on Haitian land. And lastly, consider our fight against racial injustice and white, suprem- white supremacy. And we, if we consider that to be a war, and we do, but I do not believe that we should then bomb government buildings, kill random white people, or in any way target someone for violence that has not expressed violence against us. We cannot state that we will never, never kill because that puts us at a disadvantage, but we should say that we will never kill except for specific self-defense reasons and then only when we can eliminate the threat without taking innocent lives. So the bottom line is that there is no justification for killing another human being, not in criminal law, uh, not in uh, in, in uh, constitutional law and not in international law, and no way that we can define a war would justify the killing of innocent lives. All right, that is it for this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have Bible study with Atheist Mike. Welcome back and welcome to Bible Study with Atheist Mike. And this week, our lesson is going to be a continuation of the uh, topic of war, and we're going to discuss God and war. So in a discussion about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that I had with friends last week, I mentioned that the Hamas attack on Israel was consistent with the biblical history where God would supposedly allow Israel to be destroyed by its enemies Uh, And in those cases, God's message was that 
it was the fault of the Israelis because they did not serve God properly and that their demise was divine retribution. So why is it now, I had asked, that they are saying that Hamas acted demonically? If God has traditionally allowed Israel to be brutalized by an enemy to teach them a lesson, why not just take it as the lesson and get closer to God? Now, of course, um, I'm sure they would not uh, uh, agree with that at all and would probably consider my statement to be somewhat anti-Semitic, but it's not. So in this week's Bible study, I want to review the biblical depiction of God's view of war. What does the Bible say is a justifiable war? And does the Bible's take on war and how does the Bible's take on war relate uh, to modern laws of war? Now, the Bible provides numerous instances where war is depicted as a tool for divine will, morality, and justice. However, these depictions are complex and often problematic, particularly when considered from a modern ethical perspective that scrutinizes issues like genocide and rape. And so what I intend to do in this week's Bible study is to critically analyze the biblical representation of war, the role of God in these conflicts, and the justification for actions considered immoral by contemporary standards. So war is a recurring theme in the Bible, serving various purposes, including divine punishment, territorial expansion, and establishment of moral lessons. God often plays a pivotal role, either directly uh, participating or endorsing uh, certain actions. As it relates to divine intervention in wars, God is often seen as a military strategist or commander in biblical wars. The Israelites' uh, conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua is one such example. God provided specific strategies and even stopped the sun to prolong the day, ensuring the defeat of the Canaanites. And that's Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. For a quick side topic, though, some people have stated that the current war between Israel and Hamas is not religiously based. Now, the following uh, from uh, the Bible is what Israel used to justify their occupation of the land in question. Quote, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse one. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, go to your offspring or seed, I will give this land. And that was in Genesis 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 7. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, quote, uh, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kesanites, the Kenamites, the Hittites, the the Perserites, the Raphites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, Gigashites, and the Jebusites. And that was Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. So in other words, the modern Israelis believe that their justification for occupying the land where the Palestinians live comes from a myth, and they believe that that myth gives them the right to kill anyone who does not relinquish their rights to the land. Even in the Bible, the land was occupied by others before Israel got uh, got even got there. But according to the Bible myth, God gave the land to the Israelites, even though other people were already living on it. Now, let's deal with uh, the Palestinians. 
The first record of the of the Philistines is inscriptions and reliefs in the mortuary temple of Ramses III at Madunat Hebu, where they appear under the name Prist as one of the sea peoples that invaded Egypt around 1190 BCE after ravaging Antolia, Cyprus, and Syria. After being repulsed by the Egyptians, they settled, possibly with Egypt's permission, on the coastal plain of Palestine from Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv in Israel and Jaffa. Southward to Gaza, the area contained the five cities, the Pinopolis of the Philistine Confederacy, which was Gaza, Ascalon, uh, Ashad, Gath, and Ikron. Uh, Ikron and was known as Philistia, or the land of the Philistines. It was from this designation that the whole of the country was was later called Palestine by the Greeks. So, the Palestinians have just as much right to Israel, if not more, than Israel has to Palestinian land. But let's get back to war. And I'm going to use some excerpts from a paper titled Ideas of War, written by Jacob Wright of Emory University. And I'm skipping the intro of the paper because I want to just get straight to relevant passages. And we'll start with this, quote, With respect to Ban uh, Harim, the conception in Deuteronomy and Joshua is unique. Most often this practice functions as a form of severe punishment and retribution. For example, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 2, which resembles a ban notions elsewhere in the A&E. Uh, for example, in in the Misha steel. Other texts link the ban or ban with a, a special gratitude for divine assi- assistance inasmuch as the victor forgoes any material gain. Uh, and you can see that in Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. In Deuteronomy and Joshua, however, the idea is not only more prevalent, uh, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 34, and uh, chapter 3, verse 6, and Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, with the accounts in Numbers. But also the Israel, Israelites are required to wipe out the prior inhabitants of the land, the seven nations, in order to avoid their cultic influence. The ban in these two books is therefore not elicited by anger or desire for retribution, although such vengeance is required for other peoples uh, in the Bible, in contrast uh, to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, which treats the ban together with prohibitions of intermarriage and alliances. Uh, And so this makes it clear that all men, women, and children were to be annihilated, that is, uh, that is the passages in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 34, chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 20, verses 15 through 18. So a bond or harem in the Bible is genocide, at least in its strongest expression. And though biblical scholars have tried to dance around the word, the statements by God in the Bible clearly point to genocide as a justifiable act. How could an omnibenevolent being that is also the creator of all things state that the annihilation of any men, women, and children and animals on the other side of a conflict would be justified? In several instances, God orders the Israelites to completely destroy their enemies, including women and children. For example, in 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, God commands Saul to, quote, smite the Amalek and to utterly destroy all they have and spare them not, end quote. 
These actions are often framed as divine justice or as a mechanism for pre- preventing the dilution of the Israelites' faith. But, it's, but still, it is genocide and it is still morally reprehensible. In the rare case where God did not tell the Israelites to utterly destroy their adversaries, he told them it's instead that they could take everything from the losers of the battle, including their women, which is justification for rape. Although the Bible generally condemns rape, there are instances where it is seemingly tolerated, especially in war settings. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14, it outlines the rules for marrying captive women. These narratives deep are deeply troubling from a modern standpoint and reflect the patriarchal and tribal society in which they were written. And another passage that has been seen as endorsing rape is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. And it states, quote, one, behold, the day of the Lord cometh and thy shall spoil. Or Let's reread that. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. End quote. Now, the phrase, and the women will be ravished, does in fact refer to rape. And apologists for this verse do not deny that it refers to rape, but they say that it is unclear if God is telling Israel to rape the women or uh, that it, uh, the women of the, the telling, if God is telling Israel to rape the women of their defeated foes. Uh, But it seems clear to me that that's what he's saying, or if he's just saying that they will be raped, but not necessarily telling Israel to do it. So in closing, war in the Bible serves as both a reflection of societal norms of its time, which was a barbarous society, and as a a supposed tool for divine intervention. The role that God plays in these wars is often one of command and guidance, while some justifications are given for actions like genocide and the treatment of captive women. These are difficult uh, to uh, reconcile with contemporary ethical standards. There's nothing in the Bible that would have condemned what Hamas did to Israel if the situation were reversed. That is, the Bible gives clear justification for killing innocents, including babies, and it also gives clear justifications for raping women in war. That is, if the victims were not worshipers of Yahweh. There is no moral clarity that can be gained from reading the Bible as it relates to the nature of war, and there is nothing in the Bible that can be used to condemn or condone what either side is doing in war today. All right, that is it for this week's segment of Bible Study with Atheist Mike and for our overall episode this week. So we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close things out for this week. Welcome back and welcome to the closing. And this week we're going to close it out with a story I've titled Each One Teach One. So the phrase Each One Teach One is an African proverb that originated in the United States during slavery when Africans were denied education. When someone learned how to read or write, it became their responsibility to teach someone else. The idea was to spread knowledge for the betterment of your community. And this closing story from the Griot talks about someone that is doing just that. 
quote, actor and rapper Joey Badass, formerly known as Jovan uh, Virginie Scott, is giving back uh, to the culture um, with his newest venture. Quote, I'm excited to announce that I have been silently working on a free membership program for men of color in the U.S. and Puerto Rico called At Impact Mentorship, he wrote in an Instagram post announcing the program. Quote, I recruited an impressive network of incredible mentors in the areas of art, culinary, fashion, film, TV, media, music, and sports, end quote. The rapper was inspired by his participation in his friend Sophia Chang's membership program, Unlock Her Potential, which supports women of color. He decided to work not only as Impact Mentorship founder, but also a mentor in the initiative. Quote, when I saw the impact we had on the Unlock Her Potential mentees, I knew that I wanted to create something similar for men of color who could benefit from the knowledge and experience of industry experts, he revealed in a statement to Afrotech. Quote, when I lectured at Harvard and NYU years ago, I was moved by the curiosity and enthusiasm I saw in the students. Impact Mentorship is proud to offer one-on-one -on -one guidance to anyone who qualifies regardless of education level. End quote. Now, a study by the Brookings Institute revealed that black men have the highest unemployment rates of any race or gender group and with the lowest labor force participant in employment rates among men. With the mentorship of industry pioneers like fa fashion designer Tremaine Emery and NBA star Jalen Brown, Impact Mentorship hopes to bridge this gap by providing career guidance and, uh, guidance and instilling the confidence needed to excel in any industry. Following the ethos, ethos of Unlock Her Potential, quote, imagine what 12 hours could do uh, accepted mentees will receive one hour one-on-one -on -one sessions with their mentor every month for a year. Quote, due to the high profile of our mentors, we anticipate significant demand for the program, Joey Badass advised on Instagram, quote, to increase your chances of matching with your chosen mentor, we strongly encourage all applicants to carefully research the program and mentors and prepare your application in advance and submit early, end quote. Now, the applications will be open at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on August the 15th and close on August the 29th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. And according to the program's website, to qualify, applicants must be 18 years old or older and must identify as men of color, which includes cis, trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender expansive, and gender fluid people, end quote. And I'm glad uh, for that last part. I'm glad that they covered all aspects of uh, men of color. So for details, you can visit uh, www.impactmentorship.org. And I personally encourage all men of color to look into this program. This is a great opportunity and the mentorship will you receive will be invaluable. And so good luck to all the applicants and thanks to Joey Badass for making this happen. All right, that is it for uh, the closing and for our episode this week. I'd like to remind you the intro music is Transcend by K-I-R-K. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and a bunch of other platforms. But if it's not on the platform where you typically get your podcast, send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll be sure to have it added there. 
And once it is added, make sure that you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if it's a feature of your platform, leave me a five-star review. And I leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without the thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, and it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.